uh, its strong point was the was the content, the argument, the substance. Um, the empirical material uh, relied drew totally from UN sources and from no other source really. Uh, so it was unimpeachable. Um, the the Israeli side, uh, the Israeli lawyers, did not say anything, uh, did not present any defense on whether a genocide is unfolding. What they did defend uh, was that procedurally South Africa uh, sh- should not be the party making an application. Well, Mahmoud Mamdani, we're going to continue this discussion and post it online at democracynow.org. Mahmoud Mamdani, professor of government at Columbia University, and Catherine Frankie, Columbia Law School professor. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us. This is Ursula K. Le Guin, and you are listening to KBOO, the cheerful voice of social conscience. K-B-O-O, Portland. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. The Engineering Committee meets on the first Thursday of the month at 7 p.m. This month's meeting will be held online through a public video conference. A public link and phone number to attend the meeting can be found on our website at kboo.fm. Please visit our website to verify if a meeting is being held. KBOO Community Radio is a proud media sponsor of an Oregon story, saving our beaches, farmland, and more. Screening from January 17th through January 31st across multiple venues in Portland and beyond. This film documents the history of Oregon's efforts to protect its coastline and save its farmland from urban sprawl. The documentary features archival footage and interviews with the individuals who helped create Oregon's land use planning program and defended it for the past 50 years. Again, that's a documentary film screening of an Oregon story, saving our beaches, farmland and more, from January 17th through January 31st across multiple venues in Portland and beyond. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. Coming up on the KBOO Evening News. The FBI in Oregon warns about a crime wave targeting teenage boys. A Gresham City Council member talks about the importance of health care and how he's lost members of his own family to addiction and poverty. And a Washington U.S. senator focuses on the impact of COVID and long COVID on women, people of color, and children. Good evening. This is the KBOO Evening News for Thursday, January 25, 2024. I'm Manette Newell. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Teen boys are increasingly targeted in sextortion crimes, according to the FBI in Oregon. 
It's warning that the financially motivated crimes rose 20% with teen boys often the victims. Eric Tegedoff reports victims of these sexual extortion schemes are advised to report them to the FBI or local law enforcement immediately. January is Human Trafficking Prevention Month, and the FBI says financially motivated sextortion, often targeting teen boys, went up 20% from October 2022 to March 2023. Scammers will pose as an attractive girl on social media or gaming sites, ask the boy to send nude photos or videos, then threaten to post them online if the victim doesn't pay up. FBI Special Agent Curtis Cox says the threats often cause extreme mental anguish. A fear of being exposed that way causes these kids to panic. Sometimes they attempt to make the payments, which is a big mistake. It doesn't solve the problem. It only exacerbates it. And unfortunately, oftentimes we see this anxiety lead to self-harm or thoughts of suicide. The FBI says between October 2021 and March 2023, the feds got more than 13,000 reports of online financial sextortion of minors, involving more than 12,600 victims, which the agency said contributed to at least 20 suicides. Cox asks parents to discuss sextortion with their kids and show compassion if their child has fallen prey. These kids are victims to criminals who know exactly what to say and what to do to get what they want. If your kid does report this to you, don't judge, don't be angry. Look at them as a victim and help them get the help and the resources that they need to get through this. Victims can report the crime at 1-800-CALL-FBI or online at tips.fbi.gov. For Oregon News Service, I'm Eric Tegadoff. The Bureau of Land Management is looking to increase solar energy production in the Pacific Northwest. They're holding a series of public meetings both in person and virtually in February and March to discuss repurposing up to 22 million acres of land in pursuit of a new clean energy initiative. This plan expands on Obama-era initiatives, adding land in five states, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana, to the previous six states included in the 2012 Western Solar Plan, 126 million acres of protected habitat, historic sites, recreation areas, and old-growth forests will be excluded from development. As current policy stands, according to the Washington, D.C.-based Solar Energy Industries Association, quote, at least 80 million acres of federal lands are open to oil and gas development, a hundred times the amount of public land available for solar, end of quote. Slightly more than half of Oregon land is managed by the federal government, but only 3% of Oregon's electricity has come from solar energy in the past few years. The U.S. Bureau of Land Management hopes to remedy that, aiming for 100% clean energy by the year 2035. The impact of housing and health care, climate and gun violence are all on the table as campaign issues this year. Gresham City Councilor Eddie Morales is running for Congress in Oregon among several candidates in the Democratic primary ballot in May, all trying to take the place of the retiring Earl Blumenauer in District 3. Here he tells his story and how it led him to public service. My mother came to this country in the trunk of a car. And 37 years ago, she brought us to Oregon this time she was fleeing domestic violence. The time before that, she had the my eight siblings in the backseat of strangers' cars when she came to the country. But both times she did this to ensure that we had a better opportunity, that we would be healthy, and that we would be safe. She did this to ensure that our family would remain together. Once we were in Oregon, I became the first in my family to graduate high school and to go to college. 
and in college I or- learned how to organize by joining farm workers in a boycott to demand better wages, and we won. And in that moment, I knew that workers in this country could have power. When I was in college, my mother had to flee back to Mexico with to be with my alien grandmother, but she wasn't able to return back to the United States and ultimately passed away there. And in that moment, I learned that our country desperately needed immigration reform. Since that time, I've lost two brothers to gun violence and a sister to addiction. And in those moments, I learned that we desperately need to address public policy around safety and addiction. These are the reasons why I've dedicated the last 24 years of my life working with people to make concrete improvements in their lives. I've worked in Oregon and across the country on the Affordable Care Act, comprehensive immigration reform, electing progressives to office, and supporting organizers across the country in their fights, whether it was believing Stacey Abrams that she could turn Georgia blue or standing with uh, Desmond Mead to restore voting rights for over 1.5 million um, returning citizens or supporting the community organizers in Arizona to remove Russell Pierce and Joe Arpaio who tormented immigrants. Every single time I went and organized with these communities um, to make change. I started to organize here in Gresham after my mother um, passed away and that led me to run for city council. And in the city council, I've been able to work on the issues that are tearing working families like mine apart. I'm dedicated to keeping families together, safe and healthy, just the way that my mom did, by digging in and fighting, finding solutions to affordable housing, addiction services, public safety, creating good paying jobs with health insurance, affordable and accessible healthcare, mitigating how climate change affects us all, and guaranteeing and expanding reproductive freedoms and abortion. My community is ready for me to run for federal office so that we can take the work that we've been doing here in Gresham and make that available to others. Because what's worked here in Gresham will work for Oregon, and what has worked for Oregon will work for this country. I've also been working with Planned Parenthood to ensure that people on the eastern part of this district and in East County have access to reproductive health care and help to open two clinics, one in Ontario and one here in East Portland, and also worked with a coalition of organizations, reproductive justice organizations, to defeat Measure 106, which would have rolled back reproductive rights in our community. I also serve on the board of a group called Community Catalyst. It's a national organization whose mission is that we won't stop until everyone has what they need to be healthy and our health systems are shaped by and accountable to all people. We have been funding and supporting Medicaid expansion fights. I want to share this story because I think it's one that many times gets lost and is very important for anyone who approaches healthcare through an equity racial justice lens. Growing up, my health insurance was going to the emergency room. We didn't have preventative care. And I do think in Oregon, we've made progress through the Oregon Health Plan and now allowing immigrants to also access health care. But people of color have less access to health care and live with higher risks. Many times they have harder jobs that are physical and unsafe jobs. They live in places where they don't have access to clean air, clean water, or healthy foods. They don't have access to the outdoors and public 
safe spaces and don't have quality jobs that provide the benefit. When we talk about healthcare and when we address healthcare, we have to address it through the intersection of how all of these social determinants of health impact one's healthy and well-being. In my own family, my sister passed away from opioid addictions. Um, she was a, a factory worker here, a line worker here in Oregon, and her shoulder blew out. She was prescribed um, opioid uh, medication for the pain. She became addicted and uh, we lost her. Had we had a more comprehensive health care system and network, I think she would still be here. She would have received the services to handle the addiction and we maybe wouldn't have been as quick to prescribe opioids as her solution. I also believe my mother would still be alive these days if she had access to high quality health care. See, my mother was asthmatic and at one point, because she was living in Mexico, was housebound because she couldn't be around the bad quality air around her. That deteriorated her health. When I came out, as a young person, and so did my trans niece, our community was really poorly informed about HIV and AIDS, and only stigma made its way in our communities. As members of the LGBT community, we have feared for our lives, not only from hate crimes, but from medical issues like HIV, that at times seemed like a death sentence. If we were to contract the virus, we also felt political leaders did not care enough. Unfortunately, my trans niece contracted HIV and has been living with it. Thankfully, HIV healthcare has significantly improved, but people living with HIV may not be living if they did not have access to community-based health centers, medicine, tests, and ongoing care. My own inadequate dental health care and preventative care growing up led me to spend tens of thousands of dollars to correct related dental issues that could have eventually created bigger health issues for me later. I've learned about struggles with healthcare from my community, my family, and my experience, but also from the provider standpoint, because I have a really unique perspective these days. My in-laws are a retired surgical nurse and a retired orthopedic surgeon, and they shared with me the real life stories and choices that people who come under their care have to take, including my brother who was shot. And unbeknownst to us at the time, my mother-in-law was part of his trauma team. My father-in-law in his private practice lowered costs and sometimes provided free services to patients in need and did house calls to many. My in-laws, like many other healthcare professionals, didn't go into this field for the money, the recognition, but because they are committed to the health of their communities. I saw the effects of successful and unsuccessful cases with their patients and how emotionally connected they were to their work. While remaining consummate professionals, I've had to console my mother-in-law when she comes home from work after losing a precious infant patient due to heart defects. I'm committed to restoring and improving the ACA, Medicare, Medicaid, CHIP, and to work towards a single-payer healthcare system that will protect workers who have already negotiated premium coverage and raise the quality of care for everyone else to match while reducing the overall cost. That's Gresham City Council member Eddie Morales, who is running for Congress in Oregon. He's competing against Nolan Bailenga, Jeremiah Campion, Maxine Dexter, Theodore Gwynn, Shashila Jayapal, and Michael Jonas in the Democratic primary on May 21st. Washington U.S. Senator Patty Murray is among a group of national leaders looking at how the federal government can help people suffering from long COVID. At a Senate hearing, she asked several women impacted by COVID and long COVID about the effect on women, people of color, and children. 
Since the COVID-19 pandemic, I have really been pressing for more NIH funding to help us better understand and treat long COVID, and I continue to fight for strong funding bills for health research and public health infrastructure as we are now negotiating our current funding bills. Last Congress, I fought very hard to pass my Prevent Pandemics Act to make sure that we would not be caught so unprepared for whatever the next pandemic hits. But there is a lot more that we need to do. We need better information. We need better care. We need better treatment. We be need better public awareness to help with prevention. And I know for patients dealing with this, long COVID is a serious life-altering condition and one we are learning about every single day. You know, throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, we know that women were likely to be exposed to COVID-19 frontline essential workers, our, our daycare workers, our nurses, and many of them living in underserved communities. Now, I believe in general that our country needs to take women's health um, more seriously. So I think this question I have for you is extremely important. Given the barriers women already face in getting quality care, what are some of the unique challenges you all may have seen as women seeking care and treatment for long COVID complications? And Ms. Vasquez, I'll start with you. Yes, I absolutely believe my gender and my ethnicity played a role in not being able to get care, especially at the beginning of the pandemic when hospitals were absolutely rationing care, even if it wasn't an official policy. I was told multiple times that um, unless I was elderly and in need of a ventilator, that I needed to go home and save beds for people who were really sick. And this was after getting labs showing that I was severely blood clotted. I was told that was a false positive and that I didn't actually need any care. I was sent home as a psych patient. And it, that continues to happen to women, especially women of color, black women especially. And I kept going back to the emergency room because I told myself, I am not going to be a statistic. And I think unfortunately those statistics are growing. Early on, I did have a doctor that kept saying that it was just depression and anxiety. That's why I was achy, that's why I was tired. It's just depression, it's just anxiety. Go see a therapist, let's work on it from that angle. And that's very discouraging as a woman or any patient, that it's all in my head. I know it's not all in my head, but this doctor is trying to make me feel like it's all in my head and it's very discouraging. There were some instances where I requested some testing and it was there was a little bit of pushback on that. And I think that was coming into play of being a woman and I guess brushing me aside a little bit more. One of the things I needed was uh, blood work to test my ferritin levels. And the doctor kept testing just the iron, but it's separate tests. And I found out that I was anemic. But if I hadn't kept pushing that with him, I wouldn't have been able to get that conclusion. Let me ask you about access, because a lot of patients with COVID, long COVID in my state of Washington have told me that they have really limited access to quality treatment and rehab services. The University of Washington's post-COVID rehab and recovery clinic. I know you all have lived through the challenge of navigating our healthcare system. What do you want to see done at the federal level to expand access to quality care for long COVID patients? I, I really feel like we need to broadly 
disseminate basic diagnostic and screening tools to primary care physicians. They are the front line. They're the first person that folks go to after an infection with these somewhat nebulous symptoms. And I think there's also a role to play through HHS and guidance to state Medicaid agencies to really hold contracted managed care plans accountable to identifying and treating long COVID adequately. We know that the education system during COVID, a lot of kids suffered. We're still dealing with uh, a lot of the significant impact of learning throughout that time. Your daughter's now, how how are you educating her with long COVID? We had transitioned from in-person school to a homebound program, which most states have, but even that was too much for her to be able to do with the anxiety, the four core classes, and they had tutors that would meet with them. But a lot of the teachers weren't cutting her any slack. They weren't sympathetic at all. Well, we're, we're dealing with learning loss from COVID in general, and I think we need to highlight it with long COVID patients as well, especially young kids. And that was part of a U.S. Senate hearing, including Washington Senator Patty Murray, about the impacts of long COVID. An estimated 6% of Americans are now suffering from the symptoms of it. Community leaders are calling for more housing in an effort to combat rising poverty. Suzanne Potter reports on the efforts underway in California. The poverty rate in the Golden State rose from 11.7% in fall 2021 to 13.2% in the first quarter of 2023. David Knight is executive director of the California Community Action Partnership Association. What we've seen is a tick back up in poverty as both the cost of living has risen, right, at the same time that a lot of the resources are starting to shrink back to pre-pandemic levels. I'm Suzanne Potter. You're listening to the KBOO Evening News. Stay tuned after this newscast for KBOO News In-Depth. At 6, it's Rose City Native Radio, then at 7, American Indian Airwaves. Tonight's weather, cloudy with showers after midnight, a low down to 42. Tomorrow's weather, rain likely with a high near 45. Today in history, on this date in 1905, the world's largest diamond was discovered, a 3,106-carat gem at a mine in Pretoria, South Africa. The quote of the day is from Malcolm Forbes. Diamonds are nothing more than chunks of coal that stuck to their jobs. Pressure grows for Nikki Haley to end her presidential campaign. Democrats could benefit from Louisiana's new congressional map. And the New York police investigate a possible chemical attack against Columbia University students supporting Palestine. With more on the stories impacting our democracy, here's today's edition of 2024 Talks. To say that we're just going to call it after two states, 40 states to go, the head of the Republican Party saying we don't want to hear from all the other Republicans in the nation because it's getting too close, that's nonsense. New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu says voters should decide the Republican president presidential nominee, not Washington elites. Party leaders are pressing Nikki Haley to drop out after losing in New Hampshire. Haley says the race is far from over, but former President Donald Trump is locking down support in the former South Carolina governor's home state. Louisiana Governor Jeff Landry has approved a new court-ordered congressional map creating a second majority black district. Democratic State Senator Gerald Boudreaux says this could mark the end of a years-long redistricting battle with his party picking up a seat. This gives us that unity that's needed. I think it it brings us all under one umbrella and it gives us opportunity to to, to plan. Wisconsin Republicans seem to want to avoid having the liberal-controlled state Supreme Court redraw their maps. Both GOP-led chambers quickly introduced and approved new electoral districts. Democrats charged they're moving so fast to deny them time to respond, but Republican Senate Majority Leader Devin LeMahieu says the maps won't change the partisan breakdown. 
A veto of this bill by the governor, if he decides to go down the road of vetoing, will just show his true intent of trying to disenfranchise Republican voters. Academics charge the state has some of the most gerrymandered districts in the country, but state Supreme Court justices say they'll defer to the legislature if it can pass maps Democratic Governor Tony Evers will sign. A transgender candidate running for an Ohio State House seat has been cleared to run despite failing to previously disclose her birth name. Democratic hopeful Arian Childry says what she calls her dead name no longer aligns with her gender identity, but she wants her campaign to show that all voices matter. Hopefully those people will see this is a marginalized community, and yet we're still standing. New York City police are investigating a possible chemical attack on Columbia University students protesting the Israeli war in Gaza. Students reported being sprayed with a foul-smelling liquid. Eight students were hospitalized. Students allege the attack was carried out by two former members of the Israeli military on campus. I'm Edwin J. Vieira. A bill to give voting rights to people in prison has been introduced by a lawmaker in Washington state who used to be incarcerated. As Eric Tegedov reports, if the voting rights bill passes, it could impact more than 14,000 Washingtonians behind bars. House Bill 2030, known as the Free the Vote Act, would allow people to vote in elections. Charles Longshore, a Skokomish tribal member, was convicted of second-degree murder in 2012 and is serving a 35-year sentence in a prison north of Olympia. He says black, indigenous, and other people of color are disproportionately impacted by mass incarceration. We have been disenfranchised. Our humanity has been taken. And primarily, minority people are still continuing to be denied access to the poor. Incarcerated people are allowed to vote in Maine, Vermont, the District of Columbia, and Puerto Rico. Republicans have expressed opposition to the bill, as well as Washington Secretary of State Steve Hobbs' office, which said voting rights shouldn't be given to people who have not yet paid their debt to society. Anthony Blankenship with Free the Vote WA says if people behind bars were able to vote, they would feel more connected with their communities, which would also make them less likely to reoffend. Building that sense of civic engagement, civic learning, and care about your community is what we're hoping to do with this bill. Longshore says it's hard to feel like a citizen when he doesn't have the right to vote. Our goal is to rehabilitate people, and we can't do that without restoring the right to vote. I'm Eric Tegedoff. Tribal leaders say they have mixed feelings about California's feather alert system. And Mary Peltola, the first Alaska Native member of Congress, launches her first re-election campaign. With these stories and more, here's today's edition of National Native News. Tribal leaders, advocates, California state lawmakers, and law enforcement reviewed the Feather Alert Wednesday, one year after its implementation in California. The alert system is used to notify the public and law enforcement about missing Native American people, especially women and girls. Tribal leaders gathered for a press conference at the state capitol in Sacramento before a hearing on the alert system. Joe James, chairman of the Yurok tribe, says a Feather Alert was issued just last week for one of his tribal members. Little mixed emotion when I think about that, but I'm glad there's a resource and a tool that's there. Murdered and missing indigenous women have been going on for decades. Back to our boarding schools, back to when we were abducted to remove our identity, to remove us as people. It's it's an honor here to stand here as a tribal chairman, as a tribal leader, to work my with my colleagues behind me, to knowing the work that we've done. We've got some ways yet to go, uh, but this can't be done. Without the legislator, the local law enforcement, our local sheriffs at home, our local community, our tribal leaders coming together as a whole. Josephina Frank is chairwoman of the Bear River Band of the Rohnerville Rancheria. And it's important that everyone understand that 
Our people are important, and it's important that we're all here to discuss all of this and to work together and to build those relationships and creating those memorandum of understandings with all of the tribes, whether that be in Northern California, where we're located, and Southern California, we all should be working together. I'm extremely thankful for the Feather Alert because it has helped in many cases, but the reality of it is also there's a lot of data that's not provided. Vice Chairwoman Raquel Williams of the Wilton Rancheria reflected on progress made in one year, but also says there's much more work to do. Incredible progress has been made in such a short amount of time, and we've brought not only awareness, but an actual real action to help put an end to this crisis. But we can't stop now. We must continue to train tribal members, the general public, and all levels of law enforcement on how to properly utilize this important tool so that alerts may be issued in a more timely manner. And we must increase funding and wraparound services when recognizing that these feather alerts, there's still a much needed healing and care for the victims and their families. We must continue to work together to ensure that future generations will not have to live in the same fear that we share today. Assemblymember James Ramos, who authored legislation creating the notification system, held the hearing where discussions focused on successes, challenges, and needs. U.S. Alaska Representative Mary Paltola has announced her bid to run for re-election. In 2022, Paltola made history when she won a special election to finish out the late Congressman Don Young's term. Paltola became the first Alaska native to win a seat in Congress and was later elected to her first full term. Last January, she took the oath of office beside her husband, Jean Peltola Jr., who died eight months later in a plane crash. Peltola returned to work a month later, still grieving, but said she was ready to carry on. Peltola, who's a Democrat, said she'll campaign as a bipartisan and wants to build upon the legacy of two Alaskan senators, the late Ted Stevens and Frank Murkowski, as well as Congressman Young. Paltola faces two Republican challengers. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Hawaii Pacific University is making its way to Nevada. The nonprofit private institution plans an expansion to Las Vegas later this year, as Alex Gonzalez reports. For many Hawaiians, Las Vegas is commonly referred to as their state's ninth island. The landlocked desert city attracts hundreds of thousands of visitors, with many leaving the island and staying permanently. Hawaii Pacific University will call Las Vegas home when it opens a satellite campus this coming August. Jennifer Walsh is Senior Vice President and Provost at Hawaii Pacific University. She says the university is looking to build a student base outside of the islands, especially in areas where there are strong cultural connections. All of these cultural support systems are now showing up in Vegas because the population has reached high numbers. Latest estimates are about 40,000 Native Hawaiian Pacific Islanders, former Hawaii residents, have relocated to the Las Vegas area over the last 20-year period. Walsh adds that demographics indicate that trend is likely going to continue. Private universities' undergraduate enrollment has been holding steady. But Walsh says by nature, their potential student base is prone to constraints. HPU is among several institutions that are looking to cities considered to be what Walsh terms education deserts, but yet have mounting student demand. 
Walsh says the HPU satellite campus will aim to support the ongoing need for more healthcare workers. She adds that many healthcare professionals left their professions because of the stress brought on by the pandemic. To help address the exodus, the expansion comes with two doctoral programs in physical and occupational therapy and with a master's program for physician assistants also in the works. This was a nice addition for us. Uh, it complemented our longstanding nursing program, which had been operating here in Hawaii since the 1970s. And so we thought this was the right time for us to expand our program portfolio to add some of these high-demand healthcare programs. I'm Alex Gonzalez. You're listening to the KBU Evening News for Thursday, January 25th, 2024. This is a volunteer-produced newscast, and we encourage your participation. Call or text us with your breaking news stories and tips at 971-245-2158. Our production team for tonight's newscast includes Chris Gao, Eric Tegadov, Suzanne Potter, and Alex Gonzalez. 